If you like these types of stories and want more content please go to the link in the description and buy me a coffee to support the podcast so I can get super caffeinated and awake to pump out the content. I honestly need a new computer for better sound editing and a microphone so you can hear my beautiful voice. If you are unable to do so I completely understand. Just sharing this podcast everywhere you can is so appreciated. I truly appreciate you and let's do this. MIB Encounters Part 1 The Early Encounters in the 50s 1924, John Cole, a newsman in West Virginia, visited the site of an airplane crash in Braxton County, and was told by a man in a suit, with high cheekbones, slant eyes, dark skin, that no one was hurt and no crime had been committed. He picked up a little thingamajig on the ground and took it home. About 3 a.m. he had a knock on the door. An army officer with the same foreign appearance demanded, and received, the return of, the metal thingamajig. Keel, The Cosmic Question, pp.148-50. 1947. The 22nd of June, Harold Dahl was visited at 7 a.m. by a man dressed in black, who drove him in a black Buick sedan to a cafe where he told him about his sighting of six, donut, shaped objects the day before near to Tacoma, Washington State, in such detail that he could have been there and said that if, he loved his family he would keep quiet about the matter. Wilkins, Flying Saucers on the Attack, pp.51-62, Randall's, MIB, pp.30-31, and several others. Dahl was later questioned by two Air Force intelligence officers, Frank Brown and William Davidson, when they set off by air to return to their base, the plane crashed and they were killed. Two days later Kenneth Arnold, who had also investigated the affair, was flying home when his engine cut out and he was forced to crashland. It has become common for writers to say that Dahl admitted that the story was a hoax, but an August 1947 teletype from the Seattle FBI Special Agent George Wilson to J. Edgar Hoover stated that, please be advised that Dahl did not admit to Brown that his story was a hoax but only stated that if questioned by authorities he was going to say it was a hoax because he did not want any further trouble over the matter. Keith, Casebook, P.46. 1950, an unnamed Presbyterian minister and his young son, visiting the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, became lost in a labyrinth of corridors and found themselves in a room where there was a large glass case containing small humanoid bodies. The father was instantly grabbed by several men and forced to sign papers before being allowed to leave. The son told this story to Shern Larson of the Center for UFO Studies in about 1974. Stringfield, Situation Red, P.190. 1951, several naval officers and crew in a motor launch near Key West saw a cigar-shaped object hovering over the water. A fighter plane appeared and the object flew off, vanishing in seconds. As soon as the launch docked, they were surrounded by men in dark suits who held them for hours, questioning them in a way that seemed more aimed at discrediting them than anything else. The only source for this story is an anonymous letter in a Miami paper. Keel, The Cosmic Question, pp.151-52. 1952. Summer, John Pietro Monguzzi, who had taken some photos, nowadays usually dismissed as fakes, of a flying saucer in the Italian Alps, claimed he was visited by an American secret agent, disguised as an Italian ski mountain policeman, who interrogated him through a long night apparently trying to get him to repudiate his story of having seen a disc-shaped object land on a glacier. Keel, The Cosmic Question, p.151. 1952, the 30th of July, 
Carlo Rossi, who was fishing near Vico, Italy, at the site where he had seen an airborne disc on the 24th, was approached by a tall thin man who asked him about flying saucers, offered him a gold-tipped cigarette, and when it made him ill threw it into the water, then walked off. Fearing that someone was trying to silence him, Rossi went to the public prosecutor's office in the town of Lucca and swore out a statement of his UFO encounter. Randalls, MIB, pp.143-44, Kiel, The Cosmic Question, p.151, after Jacques Vallée. 1952, late August, Sonny Davergers of Florida received anonymous threatening telephone calls at work, saying that he must not talk about his UFO encounter, and was followed about by a black automobile. Kiel, Visitors from Space, p.104. Carl T. Flock, in Evans and Stacy, UFOs 1947-1997, p.48. 1952, September, following sightings of a 10-foot-tall monster in West Virginia by backquote Kathleen May and some teenagers on 12th, and by the Snitovsky family on 13th, two men appeared in Braxton County posing as peddlers. They systematically visited the homes of most of the witnesses, showing little interest in selling pots and pans but anxious to talk about the sightings for hours. Keel, The Cosmic Question, p.122. 1952, October, Lyman H. Streeter, who had been receiving strange beeps on his radio which he believed to messages from flying saucers, was visited by Mr. Clark, who claimed to be from the Civil Aeronautics Administration, and told him that, in the interests of national security, he must not talk about this. Williamson, The Saucers Speak, pp.133-39. 1953, the 22nd of July. A mystery car drew up outside the home of the president of the Australian Flying Saucer Bureau, who had been suffering poltergeist happenings, at 3 a.m., and remained there until after 6.30 a.m. Barker, they knew too much, pp.162-62, Bender, Flying Saucers, p.65. 1953, the 16th of September, Albert Bender, founder of the International Flying Saucer Bureau, told Gray Barker in a letter, do not accept any more memberships until after the October issue of Space Review is in your hands. About the same time Bender told August Roberts that, three men had visited him, and in effect shut him up completely as far as saucer investigation is concerned. On the 4th of October Roberts and Dominic C. Lucchese interviewed Barker, who said that the three men wore, dark clothes and black hats, but his usual response to questions was, I can't answer that, e.g., Q. Do the saucers come from Venus as stated in Adamski's book? A. I can't answer that. Q. Do they come from Mars? A. I can't answer that. The final the 15th of October issue of Space Review contained the statement, the mystery of the flying saucers is no longer a mystery. The source is already known, but any information about this is being withheld by orders from a higher source. Barker, they knew too much, pp.109-110. 114, 138. In 1962 Bender would relate that three men with glowing eyes had materialized in his bedroom, all of them were dressed in black clothes. They looked like clergymen, but wore hats similar to Hamburg style. Later he was teleported to a secret Antarctic saucer base. They told him that they were from another star system, they had merely assumed human bodies, being hideous monsters in reality, and were here to extract a chemical from our seawater. Once they had finished this mission Bender would be free to tell his story, as he duly did. Bender, Flying Saucers, pp.74. Late 1953, 
contactee George Adamski wrote that, I was visited by three men, who direly threatened me, demanding certain papers I had, for one thing. Some of these I gave him, and was promised their return, but this promise was never kept, I did not give him some of my important papers. There is no denying that I was frightened. Before they left I was told to stop talking or they would come after me, lock me up and throw the key away. Keith, Casebook, pp.113-14. 1954. Maureen Abbott was waiting for a Bakerloo Line underground train in London late at night when she saw a large black panther run along the tracks. Two days later, she was visited at her home by a government official who advised her, as they sat and drank cups of tea, not to talk about the experience. Redfern, Keep Out, p.102-1954. Easter, three men who photographed a UFO over the Nullarbor plane had their film confiscated by the Australian Security Intelligence Organization, ASIO, one was later visited by a purported ASIO agent who ordered silence and, frightened the living asterisk 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 out of me. Randalls, MIB, pp.56-57. Late 1954, Marion Keach, Dorothy Martin, who had been communicating with aliens by automatic writing, was visited by two men, one an, ordinary human being, the other, very strange. The former did all of the talking. He said, I am of this planet, but he is not. For half an hour he told her that she should not publicize her information, as, the time is not right now. Later, she was visited by five young men, who told her, that what I said was all false and mixed up. And they told me that they were in contact with outer space too and all the writings I had were wrong. Valley, UFOs, pp.72-73. 1955, 20 workmen were repairing the outside of a factory in southern New Jersey, which was engaged in classified work for the Navy, when they saw a gigantic circular object descend and hover over the car park for several minutes. As they were about to clock out, a man in civilian clothes herded them into a meeting room, where he flourished a sheaf of papers, saying, we want you all to sign an oath of secrecy promising not to tell about what you saw today. Those of you who don't want to sign needn't come in to work tomorrow, or ever again. Everyone signed. John Keel stated that this story, is more folklore than fact. The story has circulated by word of mouth for years, but no one has even pinned down any of the original witnesses, if they exist. Keel, The Cosmic Question, pp.151-52. 1957, 7 July, Luciano Galli of Rome was walking from his home to work after lunch when a black Fiat pulled up and a man with piercing jet black eyes spoke to him and invited him to come with him. They drove to Croara Ridge outside of Rome, where a saucer-shaped craft was waiting. He was taken for a ride into space. Kiel, UFOs, pp.201-2. 1955, July, Edward Moots was working on the soil by a peach tree in Cincinnati on the 22nd when a red spray fell from the sky, and looking up he saw a red and green object like a pear standing on end. The tree was dead the next day, and it was taken away by three men who said they were from Air Force Intelligence. Two weeks later he saw a black Chrysler Imperial Park nearby and three men train a camera on his home. When he challenged them, in broken English they said they were taking pictures of the local industry, and then quickly departed. Stringfield, Situation Red, pp.187-89. 1957, November, Olden Moore watched a circular machine land near Montville, Ohio, on 6th, 
A few days later the local sheriff drove to his house with men in Air Force uniforms. They took him to the field where he had seen the UFO. A helicopter was waiting there. He was flown to an airport and put on a plane to Washington, where he was imprisoned for three days, and two officers tried to get him to admit he had seen nothing but a fireball. Finally he was flown back to Ohio, but later neither the sheriff nor the Air Force would back his story. Keel, The Cosmic Question, pp.155-56. 1958, February, a man from Garnisvarn, who had previously materialized in her living room, turned up at the front door of Cynthia Appleton, Aston, Birmingham, wearing a black suit, departing in a large black car with tinted windows, he visited her several more times in the next six months. Randalls, MIB, pp.61-65. If you like these types of stories and want more content please go to the link in the description and buy me a coffee to support the podcast so I can get super caffeinated and awake to pump out the content. I honestly need a new computer for better sound editing and a microphone so you can hear my beautiful voice. If you are unable to do so I completely understand. Just sharing this podcast everywhere you can is so appreciated. I truly appreciate you and let's do this.